1: hey everybody it's barry i just want to let you know i apologize for not having the podcast out at the regular time this week it's been kind of a trying week i've had the hiccups for five straight days and today's the first day they went away i've been hiccuping an average of over 30 times a minute for five days but there's a light at the end of the tunnel this morning with some nice remedies from family. I've tried everything. Thank you for sending every single thing under the sun as a solution for me to beat this thing. But this morning it finally subsided. So thank you so much for your support. But mainly the reason I'm on the podcast talking to you before the podcast is because I am presenting to you an interview with a guy who I consider to be a good friend in the business, John Ferriter, who just passed away. And as I celebrated my birthday, he passed away, and he was my age. It's devastating when you lose somebody from your business at an age that you're not supposed to lose people. And this guy was a trailblazer, an incredibly powerful agent, but experienced the highest highs and the lowest lows and became one of the few people that I consider to be the Jerry Maguire of agents in the real world. And to honor him, I'm presenting this interview that I did with him a few years back, and If you've never listened to it, you have to listen to it. It's really incredible. And if you've already listened to it, I strongly suggest you listen to it again. He was a good man. He tried to do the right thing. Sometimes in doing the right thing, he got his legs taken out, but he came back strong and was a very, very well-respected person in our industry, even from the people that considered him their enemies. I was proud to work with him. I was proud to know him. And I'm proud to honor his memory.
2: You're going to see the whole thing happen again in the next couple of years once the agencies start going public. You're going to see the exact same thing that happened back with William Morrison and, Ende- and Endeavor in 2009. You're going to see mergers. You're going to see acquisitions. You're going to see boutique agencies. You're going to see boutique representation companies. You're going to see people challenging the California Talent Agency Act. It's all about to change because the representation business is going to change. Nothing is going to stop that. Once, once you start taking in money – from people who are not connected to the entertainment industry and they look at this as a profit source and they believe that because you have to provide a profit and loss statement to them, and they come to you and tell you, you need to go to your biggest client and tell them to take a deal for financial reasons because they need it for the bottom line. And you know you have a moral obligation and a fiduciary obligation to advise that client to do what's in their best interests. That is not always in the best interest of the company, and it certainly isn't in the best interest of the public company. That's about to happen.
0: Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. This is a groundbreaking episode, everybody, because it's very rarely you get to talk to somebody who is an agent, a manager, a producer, a guy who runs companies. Very, very rare. I like to call him a magent basically, is John Ferreter. I'm going to give him the proper introduction, and after that cold open, I'm sure he's ready to fall into a diabetic-induced coma. John Ferreter is the chairman and CEO of The Alternative, a new management and entertainment production company. He was formerly the managing director of Octagon Entertainment and the former executive vice president, board member, and worldwide head of non-scripted television, for the William Morris Agency, where he started his career in 1991 working for the legendary Dick Howard. John has packaged or produced literally hundreds of programs and thousands and thousands of hours of television. Among the shows he's been associated with include several Garth Brooks television specials, Arsenio Hall, The Recent Incarnation, The Talk Show, Blue Collar TV, Fear Factor, which was on for over 10 years on NBC. The Biggest Loser, Project Runway. The Man Show, Chelsea Lately. The Tom Green Show, Piers Morgan Tonight. Larry King Live. Dr. Drew, Donnie and Marie. Name That Tune. Celebrity Rehab. The Singing Bee. The Weakest Link. Miss America. And many, many more. As far as companies, he represents the Gurren Company. White Cherry Entertainment, Don Misher Productions, and 25-7. Another one of John's talents is he's also a successful touring and recording musician, having played with the Stingrays and the Tearaways for years. John Farreter is known within the charitable circles of Hollywood as organizing the NBC tsunami benefit that generated almost $30 million for relief for that cause. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest today. I'm very, very excited. John Ferreter.
2: Thank you, Barry. I appreciate you having me here and appreciate you doing the podcast and providing insights to everybody out there who wants to kind of find out what the business is all about and why they should probably stay away from it. (laughs) That's fantastic. As as someone told me many years ago when I first started at William Morris, I said, kid, you need to have the patience of a saint and balls of steel, otherwise you aren't going to make it. And it was great advice because it's the absolute truth.
0: You started at William Morris in the early 90s. Tell our audience the first thing that happened to you that reflects that last statement that you
2: made. Day two, the agent who hired me was a great, uh, great, great man. His name was uh, Dick Howard, rest his soul. He passed away uh, around 2000, 2001. Dick called me into the office and said, hey, kid, can you keep a secret? And I said, yeah, I think so. And he said, okay, um, you can't tell anyone, but tomorrow morning I start dialysis and I'm going to be going through dialysis three to four days a week. Uh, that means I probably won't be in the office. You're going to have to take me to the dialysis center and then you're going to have to drive me home and you're going to have to do all my work here and then bring it to me up at the house so I can sign things. And then when I do come in, we're going to do self-dialysis in the office and you're going to have to help me uh, perform dialysis and take out my bags of urine when they're done. And for those of you don't
0: know dialysis... Normally, it's common for people with kidney failure, and you have to regenerate the blood and the circulation of the blood, and it's a three-hour process. It's almost like a cleansing and a transfusion kind of Correct. thing all at once.
2: So, so three days a week, I took them to the dialysis center down on Pico, and these things aren't marked, you know, so it's not like the neon lights were going to the dialysis center.
0: And these are huge machines that they're hooked up to and they're the size of eight feet
2: by four feet. Correct. And I would take him down and then um, bring him back and run the office and be in the office the whole time and answer the phones and coordinate all the paperwork and get on the phone with all the clients and have to convince all the clients that he just wasn't available. And he would call when he could. And my job was to make all the clients happy without letting anybody know what was really going on. And in the days when he was in the office, I would have to essentially do the dialysis with him, which involves putting fluids in and out of the, the body. So I learned early on, this is not a job where you're going to complain about uh, picking up somebody's dry cleaning or getting coffee for them. I literally had to smuggle 20-pound bags of urine. Out of the office every day when he was there, because he didn't want anyone to know, because his fear was that the artists care about the artists, that they would be worried, they would think that dialysis was a death sentence, and they would leave him. And I was so naive. I said, "Guy, you're the greatest guy in the world. Who would want to leave you? Like you're you're a fantastic agent." And I learned, you know, later on through experience, real you know real life experience, that. You provide a service you know, for the artists and as long as you provide the service, um, a lot of them will stay with you. Some are always looking for greener pastures. They always believe, you know, the grass is greener on the other side and some just don't care. If they don't feel they're getting serviced the way they want to be serviced at that exact moment, they'll leave. And... The business had changed that used to be being an agent or being a representative. There used to be kind of a gentleman's agreement between all the representatives that you wouldn't poach clients. And it completely changed. And it was going through a change at that point. If people realized there was a weakness, they would try to exploit it. Talk to our audience about when
0: you noticed that change happening and what was the first time you noticed that... There was a shift in the thinking and somebody you noticed was being poached by another agency or your agency was poaching another client.
2: Well, in the early 90s, our agency wasn't capable of poaching. They were, William Morris was in disarray because they had been picked clean by CAA the previous, by CAA and ICM the previous three, four years. CAA picked them clean of most of their top tier clients. Which clients at the time switched agencies? I can't remember who went where. But right before I got to William Morris, they lost Julia Roberts, Tom Hanks. It was people along those lines. Prior to that, they'd lost Pacino and Redford and all those guys. But what ICM did and CAA did in, I think it was 89, 89, 90, right before I got there, is they poached the agents. They poached a lot of the female agents who believed they were underpaid. And from my understanding, they were underpaid. They weren't being paid the same thing that the men, the male agents. Because William
0: Morris was always known as a boys club, a man's world
2: there. Correct. So when I got there, they had literally just gone through the decimation of the agency. The first time I saw firsthand how someone gets poached when I worked for Dick Howard, Dick had a few clients, uh, a couple directors, a couple producers. And then he was really known as kind of a music, country music crossover guy with the Oak Ridge Boys, Marie Osmond, Kathy Matea, Patty Loveless, Tammy Wynette, a bunch of people that just made good money all the time, were always on the road and made money. And I remember about three, four months into being at the agency, Patty Loveless got poached by a, an agency called Triad. And I remember it happened on a Friday afternoon. And everybody was panicked because it turned out no one had her home phone number. The only contact they had was through you know the manager and the manager wouldn't let anyone talk to her. And that was the first time I actually sat in a room and I watched what happened, the reaction where they realized that they had been poached and they'd been picked clean on a client. Take
0: us through the, when you were in the room, what you noticed. Um,
2: How do agents react <laughs> A lot of anger, but a lot of guilt. So the first thing that happens, and by the way, whether you're a client or an agent and you leave the agency or, you know, there's some sort of a separation between um, the client, the agent, or the agent and the agency, the first thing that the institution usually does is they say, oh, we don't want him anyway. It's a defense mechanism. Oh, you know what? We don't want to be in business with Dane Cook or whoever the client was. That's the first reaction. And that lasts for a couple hours while everybody voices They have to voice the fact to actually accept, hey, we just lost this client. Then it starts to set in, well, why did they leave? Did you just get poached because somebody offered them a deal where they have to pay less commission or whatever it is? And then no relationship, representation relationship is perfect. There are always cracks. You can do the greatest job in the world for a client. And they go to a club and meet a girl and her brother is an agent at some other place or her brother is a PR person at some other place whose brother happens to be an agent somewhere else and the next thing you know you lose your client you don't even see it coming so the thing that I noticed which I thought was most interesting at that point is no one at William Morris even saw it coming that they were in jeopardy with the client the second thing I noticed was no one actually spoke to the client. They all spoke through the manager. And I remember at that time, so this was probably late 91. I remember at that time thinking, I will always only have a relationship where I am i can speak directly to the client. No problem speaking to the manager or speaking to the agent or the publicist or anyone on the team. I welcome that. But if I don't have a direct relationship with the client, I'm not going to represent them because I don't ever want to be in that situation where someone is representing my words to somebody else. I'll do it. Right or wrong.
0: Bernie Brillstein told me this profound thing that I'll never forget. He said, kid, if the light is flashing on the phone, and it's a client on the other end, and you have a pit in your stomach, fire them. It's <laughs> good advice. Tell us... A time when you were feeling like that pit in your stomach,
2: but you just fought through and you're like, nah. Well, I usually I usually had that feeling when the light was flashing and it was Bernie Brillstein on the other one. <laughs> <line. laughs> Bernie hated me. Um, he hated you. Yeah, I did a project with him once. I was doing a project with Dan Finnerty and the Dan Band, and I had sold it to... Uh, Jeff Gaspin, who was running Bravo. We just had him
0: on the podcast.
2: Jeff's the best. And Jeff had bought it because I got Jeff and his wife to come see the Dan Finnerty show on a Friday night in Hollywood. Karen Gaspin loved it. So Jeff said, why not? We'll do a special. And I had uh, packaged the whole thing and I put McG into it to direct and produce. And I put Steven Spielberg into it because he was a fan of McG's. Uh, Jeff was paying a low license fee. Nobody was making any money. We were all doing it for passion. And a week before, Dan calls me up and says, uh, hey, my wife, Kathy, introduced me to one of her friends. He's my new manager and he wants to meet with you. And I said, great. Who is it? He goes, Bernie Bernstein. So I said, Okay. Um, so Bernie's your manager now. What about, you know, Dave, who was your great manager? Well, he's kind of out. Here's what I'm doing. <laughs> so I had to go meet with Bernie. And when I walked into Bernie's office, he looked at the deal and he said, you know, this deal's crap. And um, I don't see my credit in here. So I want you to take care of this and do this and do this. And he said, and uh, I need an EP credit on this. And you know what? Spielberg's not doing anything, so let's get rid of Spielberg. And I looked at Bernie and I said, "Uh, Bernie, this is not Ned Spielberg we're talking about. This is Steven Spielberg who's donating his time because he's a fan of Dan's to produce this. And it's McGee, who's great friends with Dan, who's doing a development deal with your client. He's going to get him on the air. And he's directing this for scale and basically donating his fee. Everyone was working for free. Even the agency waived the package fee because there was no money. And I said, I'm not making those calls. So the next thing I knew, uh, Bernie was threatening me and I ended up at a lunch at the, uh, grill with Jim Wyatt and and Bernie and Bernie. Jim Wyatt was the head of William Morris at the time. And Bernie sat across from me and he goes, I don't like you. And I said, Look, I don't care whether you like me or not. We have a client. And until we get through this, you can fire me afterwards if you want, if that's the move you want to make. All I know is this guy is a TV show. I got it for him and we almost lost it because you wanted me to fire Spielberg and get you a credit. So, what did he say when you said that? He just did the Bernie stuff, you know, so he's grumbling and yelling and whatever. But here's the irony of it badge of honor. Bernie Burlstein sending me nasty notes, which I still keep and I've got framed. You know, you think my breath smells like a thousand camels, you know, things like that. It was great. These are great Hollywood stories. And I learned a lot from Bernie. I, I read his first book. It said, you know, one in this town, unless someone wants you dead. I remember saying to Bernie, I guess I'm someone in this town because you want me dead. <laughs> That's fantastic. So, no, but it's, look, we have all these experiences that go on. It's in the Jerry Maguire sequel that they're making. They call it a John Farrier moment now. So. You know, the, the irony, you, you mentioned the merger in in the opening. I was on the board, and there had always been conversations about How many people were on the board? There were 19 that were on the board. 19. How many of the 19 were actual
0: agents at the company, and how many were people who weren't in the office every day, but they were... Advisors.
2: No, no. All 19 people that were on the board. I can't say they were all agents because some were administrators. Yeah. I wouldn't call her Weintraub, who was the COO at the time, an agent, but he certainly was a, an administrator and a board member. But there were 19 people when it came time to the merger vote. Uh, the vote. About a week and a half before I had it blocked, I had 10 votes against it and nine for it. And we were going to block the merger. Time out for a sec. You're
0: saying that you had 10 votes against. You're one guy.
2: How could you have 10 votes against it? Because what we realized was the people who really wanted to push the merger forward were going to benefit financially. And there had been the appearance of self-dealing. And when we started to ask the questions about why it was happening, there's one thing I want to clarify. I was never opposed to doing a merger for William Morris. The motion picture department was in tatters. It needed help. There were some senior leaders who were just terrible leaders, and they needed to be replaced. I was always in favor of doing some form of a merger to help make the company stronger. That was just a bad deal for the William Morris agency, and it doesn't exist anymore. William Morris Endeavor is basically Endeavor. And many, many people lost their jobs. And in my, my opinion, people were not being told the truth. That's the reason why I voted against the merger. I was the only one who voted against the merger on the William Morris side.
0: But you're on a board with 19 people. And when you're on the board, I would imagine you get to the conference table and there's a packet on the table that has the yellow and black book, Merger for Dummies.
2: No, it doesn't. It, it's it, And I wish it was that way because who knows what would have happened. I may have never lost my job if someone had taken the time. There, There was such a rush and such a push to get the deal done. Why was there a rush? You'd have to talk to the other people about why they voted for it and – who pulled what money out of it. I read all the contracts. I was one of the only people who actually got all the paperwork and read all the contracts. And even though I was sick at the time, I had contracted MRSA, which later put me in the hospital. where I, I don't know what MRSA is. It's a deadly staph infection, and that's what I went in the hospital with and flatlined while I was at Cedars. You but, flatlined? Yes. How long were you flatlined for? Roughly four minutes. Let's see what four minutes of dead air sounds like on a podcast. And then you'll see how long it was. Yeah, that's a different show. We can get into that. We can do John Ferret or Voices from the Other Side and talk about that. But going going back into the into the merger and into to that aspect, there was a rush and there was a push to get it done. And there were people on both sides who wanted it done no matter what, and it was gonna get done. So when we had been having the initial conversations, there were a lot of people who who had doubt. And I believe if we had taken more time either the results would have been different or the merger might not have happened at all. But then people got scared. And the one thing you know, because you've done this for a long time quite successfully, just like clients get scared and they want what's familiar to them and they don't want to buck the system sometimes, same thing happens with agents is they get scared. They've got house payments, car payments, kids need braces. Private schools cost a fortune in this area. They're concerned about insurance. uh, Family members have cancer, have health issues that they're dealing with. So people got very quiet. And as a result, uh, I'll never forget the day of the vote because we walked in a room. William Morris was founded by a guy named Zelman Moses in 1898. He changed his name to William Morris. He started uh, representing jugglers and clowns and making money with them. We still do it to this day. And um, the company was 111 years old. And we walked into the room at the Beverly Wilshire and someone said, OK, let's uh, take a vote. Let's do a show of hands. And I went, Wait a minute. We're not doing a merger where we're going to change the name of the company and do all this stuff without discussion first and by doing it with a show of hands. We're going to go around the room and everybody can enter their vote. And, you know, I, I want this to be a roll call, but I want to talk about it first. Now, at the point when you said that,
0: out of the 19 people, I would imagine you're not number one on the depth chart, but you're not number 19, but you're certainly not in the top 10, yet you're raising your hand and speaking and saying, hey, listen, we're not doing this. And there's at least 10 other people who are more powerful than you in the room,
2: yet you're Well, there were 18 more people who were more powerful because they all voted for it. But look, here here was the reality. I was not opposed to a merger. The company was in trouble. There was bad leadership. It was a bad, failing motion picture department. If I had called you back then, and I think you had Dane Cook, who was white hot at that point, and said, hey, we want Dane Cook at this agency. You would have, out of courtesy, given me a meeting. You would have talked to me and you would have said, John, if it was all about your area and doing specials and comedy and game shows and non-scripted and sketch comedy and all this other stuff that you've been involved with, I probably would have had a shot. But if I had looked you in the eye as an industry professional and said, we are the best agency for your client and we can turn him into a movie star, you would have said, John, you're delusional and you would have been right. So the problem was we couldn't sell certain aspects of the agency and promise full service because we weren't giving it. The agency wasn't doing it. And the irony is... You're going to see the whole thing happen again in the next couple of years. Once the agencies start going public, you're going to see the exact same thing that happened back with William Morris and Endeavor in 2009. You're going to see mergers. You're going to see acquisitions. You're going to see boutique agencies. You're going to see boutique representation companies. You're going to see people challenging the California Talent Agency Act. It's all about to change because the representation business is going to change. Nothing is going to stop that. Once once you start taking in money from people who are not connected to the entertainment industry. And they look at this as a profit source. And they believe that because you have to provide a profit and loss statement to them, and they come to you and tell you, you need to go to your biggest client and tell them to take a deal for financial reasons because they need it for the bottom line. And you know, you have a moral obligation and a fiduciary obligation to advise that client to do what's in their best interest, that is not always in the best interest of the company, and it certainly isn't in the best interest of the public company. That's about to happen. So you're about to see the big bang theory and nothing is going to stop it. It will provide opportunity for certain people, but you watch what's about to happen. You watch when public companies get a hold of these agencies and the clients start to realize what the agents are actually making and where they make the money, and from what sources they come from. And you watch when some up-and-coming movie star realizes that their agent flies private and makes more money than them. You watch how long they stay with them in that agency.
0: Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, A -a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. Hey, everybody. and I wanted to thank some of the sponsors on the podcast, starting with AquaTrue if you haven't bought this countertop water purification system you have to do so it's incredible it turns tap water into your favorite bottled water instantly it saves you thousands and thousands of dollars it gets rid of all those plastic bottles that you have and your trash thousands and thousands of listeners have bought these everybody loves it not one complaint it's incredible i haven't bought a bottle of water in years since i got this and you won't either and if you go right now to industrystandardwater.com and type in the promo code barry you'll immediately get a hundred dollar discount a hundred dollar discount and start enjoying the best and most cost-effective water you've ever had i guarantee it lastly the air doctor i don't know what the air inside your house is like but the air inside my house it feels heavy at times before i got this product And now it got rid of all the bad air in my house, the dust, the pet hair, the pollen. It just gets rid of all the contaminants circulating through your home. And for me, when I got this product, it was amazing the difference that I found in the air in my house. And it's normally $600. And you can check Amazon right now and you'll see. But for all of you listening today, I can offer you $300 off. $300. Just go to airdoctorpro.com and type in the promo code Barry. That's airdoctorpro.com promo code Barry and save $300 and get rid of all the bad toxins in your house and start breathing the cleanest and healthiest air in the world. Now, you had mentioned earlier that in the early discussions... There were 10 people that were not in favor of the merger and nine that were. Now, this is the William Morris side. We're not even talking about the Endeavor side and their meetings. We don't know what their meetings were like or who was voting for or against there. But on your side, you said in the beginning, you and nine other people were like, "Eh, I don't think this is a good idea.
2: How did it change
0: so rapidly.
2: Well, if you've ever watched an episode of Survivor, people start making deals. <laughs> What's in it for me? There there was a great quote a friend of mine said to me, and I'm going to attribute it to David Geffen. I wasn't there, so I don't know whether he said this or not, but I'm going to attribute it to him because my friend said he said it to him. And it's a great quote. And because he said to my friend when he was questioning something, he said, your problem is you just don't understand what some people will do for money. And when you get in a situation, I mean, look, in 1991, how many agents drove Ferraris? What, maybe Gavin Pallone? <laughs> drove Maseratis, Aston Martins, you know, Carreras, things like that. A couple of music agents. Everyone drove Cadillacs and those stupid green Jaguars and all those things. Go to the agencies now and look what they're driving. You know, they'll drive a Prius into the office to say, look, I'm, you know, conscious of the environment. And then they go home and they're driving Maseratis and Ferraris and all these other things. No one made that money before. But they do now. The business has changed. It's completely changed. In 1990, 91, did you ever see an agent from William Morris call over to Daily Variety or Hollywood Reporter and say, hey, I know you're writing that article on uh, this new deal we did. Make sure you put he's represented by me and represented by <laughs> you, know, the, uh, you know, so-and-so at the law firm of Dewey Fuckum and Howe and uh, so-and-so <laughs> management company and so-and-so PR. I mean, now there's so many attributions to all these things, it didn't exist back then because we were all anonymous. When I first heard Barry Katz's name, I, you know, I thought of George Burns. That's George Burns' best friend. He's got to be 90 years old. The guy's been in the business for 70 years. And I walk in and see this young, strapping, you know, big guy who's you know probably younger than me. And I doubtful. And I kind of look up and I'm like, oh wait a minute. Uh, the perception was completely different, and it's all changed. It's all changed because now, I mean, look at uh, Scooter Braun as a as a manager. He's a mover. He's a shaker. He's a great manager. He's built this great company. He's got almost a million Twitter followers or something. And and by the way, good for him. He deserves it. He's built an incredible business. But the managers and certain agents and certain players, so to speak, have become stars in their own right. That's one of the things that I worried about when I
0: started this podcast in my spare time. And again, for those who don't know, John and I are doing this during our lunch break. Sure. But But it's a situation where no matter what you're doing and you're trying to do something that will sort of – pull back the curtain on the business and help people, there's always going to be somebody out there saying, well, why did you take your lunch and do that with John Ferrer? I mean, you could have been making calls for me. me.
2: Okay. But I'll tell you something. This is what I learned. And I was at William Morris from something like August 21st, uh, 1991 to depending on who you talk to, October 16th, 17th, 18th, or 19th, uh, 2009, when they fired me. They violated my contract. They locked me out of the building. They fired me. And that's why there was a lawsuit. But for that 18 years, as I was there, or 18 years plus, I was transactional. Deal, 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 meeting, deal, call, deal, sell, 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 sell. Before I got to William Morris, I'd written Two hundred and fifty songs. I played in a band for years. I played every crappy club in L.A. and Santa Barbara. I'd been on the road. I'd opened for R.E.M., The Bengals, Guns N' Roses. I had a whole different creative side. In the moment I got to William Morris, they subjugate the creative because they want you to be transactional because it's about making money. When I got out of William Morris, my Jerry Maguire moment was not in the merger, and my Jerry Maguire moment was not. When I flatlined at Cedars and my clients, you know, that Ryan Seacrest and Chelsea Handler and people like that left me when I was in a coma. That wasn't my Jerry Maguire moment. My Jerry Maguire moment was when they locked me out and called all the clients and said I had resigned and I hadn't. And then I had to go to the 200 some odd plus clients that I had. And I realized only about 12 stayed with me. Okay, that was the moment where I went, oh, where's the goldfish? Like, this does not end well. And I had to rebound and rebuild myself out of it. But what I learned in the process of going through all these things is that I came out of it and I went, okay, well, this happened. I can't change it. I can't go back and suddenly say, oh, gee, I was wrong. You know, I'm support the merger. I think this is good. Gee, Ariel Emanuel, I think you're the best guy to run this company. You know, I never felt that way. I still don't feel that way they can make as much money as they want and I think it's great and they should because it's their company they can do whatever they want with it but they killed what was the William Morris Agency. It's dead. It doesn't exist anymore. And that part of Hollywood is gone forever. But what I learned was part of my rebirth is I got the opportunity to change my life from being 100% transactional to getting back on the creative side and getting balance in my life. And the stuff that I was missing, which I think also contributed to me getting, getting sick and getting ill, was that I didn't have the balance in my life and I needed to get the balance. I needed to get all the toxic stuck at, uh, stuff out of my life. And I needed to get that creative balance back in. So by leaving William Morris, even though it wasn't my choice, I was fired. So by that happening and everyone thought I'd never be fired because of the money I brought in and who I controlled and everything, but anyone can get fired. Anyone. What I realized was it's almost like Between that and flatlining at Cedars, it's almost like if you believe in God, God had said, act one of your life is over. We're now going to take an intermission and act one of your career is over. We're going to take an intermission and I will decide solely by myself, because I'm God, whether or not you get an act two. So let me check the reviews. And I'll come back and I'll get back to you. That was that four minutes that I flatlined. And that was really what I went through on October 19th when I was locked out of the building, when I was testifying in a a lawsuit against uh, Jillian Barbary. And they knew I was in court and my phone was off. And that's when they called all the clients and said I had resigned. That was the moment where I had to really look in the mirror and say, okay, who am I and who am I going to be? Am I going to be a victim or am I going to be a survivor? Am I going to be a quitter or am I going to be a winner? And I can never beat them by trying to be an agency. So as far as I'm concerned, I probably will never be an agent again. It ended at that point, you know, and by the way, and I don't know what agency would ever hire me because I will tell them the truth and most of those agents just aren't very good. So there would be a complete bloodletting if I went into any of these places because I demand a higher quality of service. But I had to decide at that point, who did I want to be from that point on going forward? And it was more important to me, I realized at that point, to do right than to be right. And that was part of the transition in my life and in my growth. So you're in the room, you
0: raise your hand, and you say, wait a second we got to go around the room and talk about it. Did they do what you said, or did they continue with the process that they were doing?
2: They did what I said. We changed what we did. Okay, so you had an impact in the room. Most people looked down because I think, well... I won't say I think. I will say I know because six years have gone by. So I've spoken to so many people. Most people have come back to me and have said, you were right. We should have listened to you. But most of those people who've said that to me lost their jobs.
0: So you go around the room. If you remember correctly, what number were you? when you spoke in the chain of the people who spoke out of the 19 when you voiced your no vote, was it you were the first guy to speak? Were you the ninth person to speak, the 18th? I was 14th or 15th. So at that point when you speak, you already know it's already passed. So I'm just asking you this question because I just think it's important because I'm trying to understand your philosophy here. So... At the 14th person, it's already passed your vote. Whatever you say or do is inconsequential at that point. It doesn't matter. It has no effect. You can't turn anything around. You're a very smart man. You had to know that when you voiced your opinion after everybody had talked that there were going to be ramifications walking through the building. Why did you express your opinion when it
2: had no impact at that point? Because the way I was raised and the way I was raised by my father and by my mom was, whatever you do, leave with your integrity intact. And we make mistakes all the time. You do. I do. Everybody here in the room, we've all made mistakes. Some we regret, some we don't regret. We learn from the mistakes. It wasn't a mistake. If I had voted yes, I would have been letting down all of the people who believed in the William Morris Agency.
0: What about if you just abstained? Would you have been fired?
2: Oh, I was going to be fired no matter what. (laughs) Look, pussies abstain. You either vote yes or you vote no. Pussies abstain from elections. You figure out, you you write something and you do something. I'm not a pussy and I will never be a victim. And in in this particular case, here's what I knew. There were people on the board who were signing long-term five-year deals that were guaranteeing them $4 million a year plus a $70,000 a month draw and they were doing it for the money and they didn't care about what happened to the company in my opinion. They can come in and do your podcast and they can tell you something different if that's their feeling. When I went through the lawsuit I read thousands of emails during discovery of what people said and what they were thinking at that point and a lot of it was just about the money. It wasn't, it wasn't about let's make a better company and let's do this. There were people who were frustrated who wanted out and they saw a way to get a lot of money. And they voted accordingly, and they had the power, and they were able to push it through. Let's say you were one of the people that somebody
0: met you on a park bench, and they said... Hey, you're going to get the same deal. You're going to get the same deal. Would you abstain, said pass on this deal, or would you said, let's move forward? Really
2: good question. I would have voted no. It was a bad deal. And if I'm going to make a bad deal for myself, and I'm going to make a bad deal for the agency, how can I possibly represent a client in this business?
0: How do you make a bad deal with a merger between a 111-year-old company and
2: a company that really was rising like a rocket ship? They weren't. You say that because you were in business with them and you had clients with them, you know. So, there's a different face they put on when they're in business with you. There are different things they say about you when you're not or when you pull a client. And most people aren't in that room when that happens at an agency a lot of these agencies have the mentality it, it it's like the geek fraternity they're the guys who couldn't get laid in high school or college they're they're not you know they're they're part of a they're part of a pack in terms of what they do, and that's the attitude when you're in these staff meetings. Uh, you'd have to go back and look at all the financials, and and I don't really want to get into what all those financials were, but I didn't see in either case fiscally sound companies getting together. I saw a company that was hurting fiscally, that had an opportunity to take over William Morris, and my hat's off to them. They did a great job. As far as I'm concerned, they stole the company away from those guys. (laughs) William Morris had lots of money from different sources, but they were bloated there were a lot of agents who weren't uh, producing who weren't that successful as far as I was concerned and they were being paid a decent amount of money and they were staying there there were agents who were rising through the ranks who were put in positions of authority who legally should not have had the ability or the authority to supervise an assistant and they were making decisions there i mean it's it, it's very much like you know watching rome Burn, you know, when you're in the middle
0: of it. Hey, everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. And you mentioned that they killed William Morris forever. So let's analyze this. This is six years ago. How many people were on the Endeavor board that was meeting that you guys weren't privy to? The partners they had
2: were 28. I don't know what their board was, but there were 28 people who voted. They all voted yes.
0: 28 people from Endeavor that voted yes. Yes. 18 out of 19 at William Morris that voted yes. So out of the 19 people at William Morris six years ago that were in that room, how many still work for William Morris? It's a good question. I think seven. Seven. So approximately 12 people are no longer working. You were in that meeting at Endeavor. Actually, the-
2: talk to me January 1st and maybe six
0: out of twenty eight people in that room in endeavor, how many are still at the company
2: i don 't know the exact number, but I think it's 28. it 's twenty eight could be twenty seven got it so that 's what you mean It was an inside job there was it was very clear, and there were things which were represented and then misrepresented that you know I experienced firsthand but But I will tell you one thing. I have no regrets over anything that I said or anything that I did because I believe I was able to do what was right, was right for the people who were essentially my constituents, um, who I represented when I walked into that board meeting, and I've got no regrets with it whatsoever. And I look at where I am life-wise now, the experiences I've had, although some of them have been very difficult, it was very difficult to be in a lawsuit for two years and, you know, read emails of what people said and um i came up with a new phrase you know people say characters who you are in the dark i say characters who you are on email so I learned so much from the process. I'm forever grateful for that. It made me a better person. It made me a stronger person. And from that point of view, anytime I walk in a room, if I see any one of those guys, I hold my head high. I've got nothing to be ashamed of.
0: You run into these people all throughout town. Sure. Tell me somebody or... A group of people that were in that room, that if there was a true serum in your veins, you'd say, you know what? I still have enormous respect for that person. They're a great agent, they're a great person. They made a deal that they believed in, whether it was financial or not. They're still doing great right now. And even though they tried to take my legs
2: out i still respect them of both companies yes i think Ari Greenberg's a great agent and i think the tragedy to those guys would have been if Ari had run scripted and i had run non-scripted how much money they would have made that would have been unstoppable he's a very very good agent and i have a lot of respect for him um i like mike simpson mike simpson I have a tremendous amount of respect for Brian Spicer at APA. I worked with him for years at William Morrison Octagon and I've watched how he's developed and he's a great agent. Um, I always look at it in answering your question, would I sign with them? So... If I needed an agent, yeah, Brian is somebody I would sign with. I have a tremendous amount of respect for Deborah Goldfarb and what she's done. And Deb and I worked together at William Morris, and we had a fallout when she went to CAA. And, you know, I, I've since really learned a lot about her. Um, personally, I always knew her and always respected her. But personally and professionally, I've watched how she's done her business. I think she's terrific. I I have a lot of respect for Babette Perry, who's now at Innovative. Yeah, She's hung in there, and she's done a great job. And she'll pick up the phone and call me and say, hey, here's a heads up on something. Um, Those are people who have been genuine and they've also called me at times when I've been down. I'll give you an interesting fact. I was thrown out of William Morris on uh, October 19th or thereabouts, 2009. To my knowledge, and I could be wrong, I could be forgetting something, but to my knowledge in that six plus years, I don't think one person from the agency has taken me to lunch. Wow. And I trained, promoted, coddled, uh, developed that entire department and other departments as well. But not one of those people has reached out and said, Hey, I want to say thank you for what you did or I don't want to say thank you. I just want to see how you're doing. Not
0: one. Incredible. I thought there'd be a story of one person who called you and
2: said, Listen, I'm not supposed to call you, but there are stories of people who've called, who've said that there, there are a couple of people, you know, who've done that, but for the most part, and it's interesting. I ran into someone, I was in the building two days ago cause I was meeting with one of the law firms there working on something and I was in the elevator and I saw a guy who was in the department and he's like, Hey, you know, I'm going to call you and we're going to go to lunch. And I just laughed. I'm like, you're not going to call me and we're not going to go to lunch and you're a liar. <laughs> and what did he say? <laughs> there was nothing he could say because he knows it's true. In an elevator you said that. Yeah. There were like two other people in the elevator. <laughs> but 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 here's the deal. If you don't say it, then we all have this myth like everything's going to be okay. Look, here's the deal. Life isn't like all the Hollywood movies. You can't focus test the ending in life and then decide what you want to do. You make decisions on the spot. You make decisions on behalf of your client. If I told you how many times some buyer had called me and had threatened me and said, if you don't do this, I'm going to do this to your client. It's like, Well, I'm doing it because it's in the best interest of the client and they're the one paying me and I'm not selling them out. You got to call people's bluffs. You have to call it. And if they really have the power and they want to blackball you, then they're going to do it, but they're going to do it anyway. But at least as they're blackballing me, they can respect the fact that I have no respect for them. Got
0: it. So, so tell me somebody who visited you or called you after you were flatlined or at some point in the hospital that completely stunned you. And the reason why I'm saying this, I saw that one of the greatest documentaries I've seen in the past decade was the Magic Johnson, Larry Bird documentary. where Magic talks about how Larry just completely iced him, treated him like shit, never gave him the time of day, never let him believe that he had any feelings for him, And then when Magic was diagnosed with AIDS and it came out on the Arsenio Hall show, somebody who John has represented, Magic gets home and the phone rings and he picks up the phone. It's Larry Bird. Yeah. And Magic starts crying in the interview because he talks about how you never really understand really, truly who your friends are until until something really horrible happens to you. So tell me somebody who you were stunned that they actually reached out to you when you thought maybe this person was never a person who would be that kind of person to you.
2: Well, I have to put a caveat. On it because it's not that I didn't think they would be that type of person. In some cases, I didn't think they really knew I existed. <laughs> if that makes you like, you know, you see them and you meet them. But the people who openly went out of their way to help me, uh, Jeff Gaspin was one. Oh, Paul Taleggi was
0: another. Paul Teleggi is the head of non-scripted at NBC and was one of the people with Jeff who launched The Voice. Right. Um, David Hill. David Hill, another guest of this podcast, was at the time the president of Fox Sports, but the number two guy to Rupert Murdoch.
2: Les Moonves. Couldn't have been more kind. And... Uh, All the CNN brass, John Klein, Jim Walton, all those guys. What happened was when I started at Octagon, I basically went to a sports management marketing company and they said, we need an entertainment division because their fear was as the traditional agencies got into sports, they'd start to poach their sports clients.
0: Ironically, John,
2: a publicly traded company. Correct. Correct. So uh, by IPG. So when I went to Octagon and started the entertainment division and we started getting into it, what was amazing were the five or six people called and said, what can I do to help you? And that was my magic Larry moment when I realized, and I said this to a couple of people, I said, you don't have to do anything. You just did it. Just the fact that you called. I remember da- David Hill who's just one of the greatest guys in the history of this business. Amazing. Saved the Fox Network by getting that football deal 20-some-odd years ago, and he's producing the Academy Awards now. And David's just an unbelievable person. <laughs> Two or three days after I got locked out, n- I mean, nobody would take my call. Nobody would return my call. Clients weren't calling. I'd had one client called me right off the bat. Piers Morgan and said, if you're out, I'm firing him. And he did. And then Glenn Weiss, who's directing the Academy Awards this year for uh, uh, for David, Glenn called me you know, moments later and said, what's going on? I told him what was going on. He goes, okay, I'm out. I'm firing him. And then there were other people, Nancy O'Dell, Karen Chetry, Mark Wahlberg. There were people like that. Mark Wahlberg, the TV host. Um, there were certain people who just said, you're my guy, whatever's going on, I'm coming with you. And that was great ironically, some of the production companies and producers I was really close with, they didn't call for a few weeks. And then a couple came, but most of them didn't come. They really weighed their options. And I suddenly realized, wow, I'm not what I thought I was to them. Um, but it was a couple people. David Hill, two, three days afterwards, he took me out to lunch. Took me to lunch at the grill. And bear in mind, I would just gotten off crutches. I had been in the hospital for 60-some-odd days before that. I'd been back at the agency about a month. They wanted me gone. You know, they kept drilling at me until Ari was able to lock me out. And the irony of it was as soon as David took me out and as soon as he literally did it in a very public manner, it was kind of like – oh, okay. You know, I get it. I got to come back tomorrow and I got to do this again. And I've got nothing to be ashamed of. I just got to go and live my life. Knowing that a guy that I'm going to end up suing is sitting at the next table with one of my ex-clients pitching a show that I developed for the guy. So, you know, it's when you have clients and you separate with them, it's you know having a client list is like being married to 50 different people and trying to make all those marriages work and that that's really what it comes down to so you do the best that you can but you also understand sometimes you know between the client and the representative you're just not meeting each other's needs
0: and that wraps up part one of our podcast I just wanted to thank my incredible partners, starting with AquaTrue, the revolutionary miniature countertop water purification system that works straight out of the box. Plug it in, fill it with tap water, and immediately turn your faucet into your favorite bottled water for pennies. You can get $100 off when you go to industrystandardwater.com and just type in the promo code BEAR and start enjoying the best and the Air Doctor, the innovative portable air purification system which will change your overall quality of life and instantly removes dust, pet hair, mold, pollen, flu viruses and other contaminants circulating in your home normally $600. And if you don't believe me, check Amazon right now. But for a limited time, I can offer you 50% off. That's a $300 savings. Just go to airdoctorpro.com, type in the promo code Barry, and start breathing the cleanest and healthiest air in the world. And that wraps up part one of two episodes. You can check out the next episode this coming Thursday. And here's a preview of the next
1: episode.
2: Understand that you don't know everything and nobody you're dealing with knows everything. You can always learn. You can always get better. Number two, never get in a car in Los Angeles if you have to pee. And number three and the most important, (laughs) do not sleep your way to the middle. Thank you
0: so much for listening and have a great day. Life is for the dreamer They have all to gain It's never quite over So it all feels the same You pick your own poison